Before we get to Psalm 25, I just want to say it's the plane, not the pilot. Top Gun, Maverick, come on, come on. It's, it's, I'm sorry, it's, I got that backwards. That's why, that's, <laughs> that's why I'm getting all those looks. <laughs> Man, uh, you know, I prepared for that, and I got it backwards in rehearsal, so, you know. It's not the plane. It's the pilot. Thank you. Of course, some of, some of the engineers in the room are saying, no, you had it right the first time. Big movie this, uh, earlier this summer, and one of the reasons why it was a big movie was because it tapped into... Uh, Something, I think, at the heart of what our culture is wrestling with. It was, it was an old school movie, wasn't it? It just kind of got back to the basics. And it, even that line, it's not the plane, it's the pilot. Um, even that line kind of calls us back to, man, you know, at, at some point, all the progress, all the scientific advancement, all the whatever, uh, really still boils down to human beings. It still really boils down to the people that make the difference. And sometimes you just need to go old school. Sometimes you, you need to get back to the basics. Now, I do want to put a disclaimer here at the beginning of this message. I do not want to traumatize the teachers uh, or children in the room. Um, it is still the middle of summer. Don't worry. Uh, we're going to talk about school a lot today, but um, we're not going back just yet. So everybody, relax. Um, also, I do have to say one thing about that, two things about that video. Uh, first of all, Aiden, oh my goodness. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. Woo. I, think, I think between him and Skyler, we've got like a, a Spielberg and, uh, give me another director, uh, thing, thing going here. We've got some video directors, producers here. Um, and also, I, what, Jillian, was that you and... Doing the one, busting the one dance move. Okay, okay. So between you and, and Nick Andrews, oh my goodness, we got, we got some dancers in the church too. Um, but we're going to go old school this morning. We're going to go to Psalm 25. And so um, if you do not have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, uh, I would encourage you to use the Pew Bible from the pocket in front of you. You will find Psalm 25 on page 483. Uh, in that particular printing of the Bible. And just as a reminder, those, those Bibles, those copies of God's Word are always provided as uh, a gift to you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in your own home, please take it with you. We would very much want you to have it. But we are in Psalm 25 today, and so I would like to ask you to stand as uh, I read that uh, text for us. I am uh, preaching and reading from the CSB today. And this is how it reads. Psalm 25, Dependence on the Lord of David. Lord, I appeal to you. My God, I trust in you. Do not let me be disgraced. Do not let my enemies gloat over me. No one who waits for you will be disgraced. Those who act treacherously without cause will be disgraced. Make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. I will wait for you all day long. Remember, Lord, 
your compassion and your faithful love, for they have existed from antiquity. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion. In keeping with your faithful love, remember me because of your goodness, Lord. The Lord is good and upright, therefore he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant and decrees. Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. Who is this person who fears the Lord? He will show him the way he should choose. He will live a good life, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he reveals his covenant to him. My eyes are always on the Lord, for he will pull my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am alone and afflicted. The distresses of my heart increase. Bring out my sufferings. Consider my affliction and trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies. They are numerous and they hate me violently. Guard and rescue me. Do not let me be disgraced, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and what is right watch over me. For I wait for you. God, redeem Israel from all its distresses. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So a little bit of background about this psalm we read here in the text. It is of David, so it's written by the historical king of Israel. Uh, It is a didactic psalm. That means that it's a psalm that teaches uh, as you may have noticed as we read through this psalm, that's the, that's the present theme that's woven into it, learning, teaching. It's woven throughout it. David asked the Lord to teach him the Lord's paths for guidance in truth and declares that the Lord shows or instructs sinners in the way. It's also an acrostic psalm. Acrostic psalms follow the progression of the Hebrew alphabet to structure their content. Now, this particular one does not use all of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but the lines do each begin with a different letter of the alphabet. It's one of nine such acrostic psalms. And of course, among those, the most famous is 119, uh, where every stanza begins with a different letter. And that's part of why it's the longest chapter of the Bible. Now, why an acrostic structure? Well, James Montgomery Boyce uh, gives us three good reasons. One is for artistic reasons. Uh, In other words, for Hebrew poetry and and scripture that's organized as Hebrew poetry, it could fulfill a similar function to rhyming in English poetry. So, you know, when you hear a a rhyming poem, you know, it's like, okay, oh, wow, this fits. That was very clever. I'm glad. Nice how they use that. Um, Similar artistic reasoning perhaps, for uh, such a structure. Uh, Then there's also perhaps a desire to indicate uh, a full treatment of a subject. In other words, hey, I've covered this from A to Z, uh, literally, uh, in the case of um, Psalm 119. Um, Or perhaps third, to serve as a mnemonic device, uh, something to kind of help the young, help students who are trying to memorize Scripture uh, to be able to do that. In fact, 
James Boyce points out, uh, that many Old Testament passages are formatted in poetry rather than prose, and perhaps that's because poetry is easier to memorize. So those are some reasons why this psalm could be structured that way. So not only is it a didactic and acrostic, but it's also a psalm of lament. Over and over again, you keep hearing David cry out. He's, he's making pleas to the Lord for deliverance from enemies. He's, he's asking for instruction, both for himself, and he's noting that that's just God's way, to instruct others in his way. Uh, and finally, to seek God's forgiveness uh, for past, present, and future sins. He's, he's coming before the Lord lamenting all of these things and seeking the Lord's relief for all of these things. There's another quality this, to this psalm that needs to be pointed out. It's, it has a universal quality to it as well. It's representative of the prayers of believers across all time. All of us can relate to David's words in this psalm. We seek to fill the same needs. We, we feel the same vulnerabilities. And so this morning we are going to kind of step back a little bit into the old school classroom, back to the basics. And we've got uh, an ABC approach here to see these themes as they develop in Psalm 25. So A for us uh, is that our, our impotence leaves us insecure. Therefore, we need God's merciful deliverance. Our in, in impotence leaves us insecure. Therefore, we need God's merciful deliverance. We see this in three places across the length of the psalm. In the face of our enemies, both without and within, we have no hope in ourselves. We are weak and we are vulnerable. Human beings, at least the honest ones, the self-aware human beings, uh, realize that we live with an insecurity that we just can't shake. David understands this. Throughout the Psalms, we have an extensive record of how keenly he is aware of his own limitations. You say, but, but isn't this the guy who killed lions and bears as, as a boy who, who killed a giant named Goliath? Well, yes, this is that very same David. But if you go back to those accounts and you go back to the Psalms that reflect on those events, uh, you will find a consistent thread running through all of those, those accounts, all of those psalms. Over and over again, David says, it wasn't me. I could have never survived, let alone won, without the Lord. The Lord won those victories for me. Soli Deo Gloria. It's okay, we say amen and hallelujah around here every now and then. <laughs> Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. That was David's mindset. He, he knew that it wasn't him. So here in Psalm 25, David cries out to the Lord for deliverance from his enemies. And he understands quite well that he needs God's merciful intervention in his life. So do all of us. In verses 1 through 3, David begins by appealing to the Lord. He declares his trust in God. But then he expresses fear. David is afraid of being disgraced. He's placed his trust in the Lord, but for a fleeting moment here, David seems to experience momentary crisis of confidence. So what is this about? 
It's not about God as though God is capable of failure or is going to let David down. And it's not about David's enemies, though his cry to the Lord shows that he admits he can't take them on on his own. But it's not about them either. Most likely, David is afraid that God will abandon him as a hopeless cause due to his failures and how often he lets God down. There are two reasons to believe this. First, immediately in verse 3, David makes clear he's not concerned about God holding up his end. He, he writes there, no one who waits for you will be disgraced. This is very sure in David's mind. And the second reason is that as we'll see later, David is clearly wrestling with conviction over his own sin. Certainly his past sin, his present sin, and perhaps even his future sin. He knows that his own goodness and righteousness isn't nearly enough. In fact, he has blood on his hands and a history of inconsistent obedience at best. It is this unworthiness that gnaws at David's confidence. Then in verses 16 and 17, David reveals what he's going through. Now see if this sounds familiar, if you can relate to this. He admits that he is both alone and afflicted, and the distresses of his heart increase. He even points out, points to his sufferings, plural. David's a wreck. He just can't take one more, fill in the blank, one more shooting, one more lockdown, one more friend or loved one suffering. I told you we can relate to what David's talking about here. This is a man who's feeling the water get higher and he is feeling the water, or excuse me, the fire get closer. His stress, his anxiety levels are going through the roof. So David cries out and says, Lord, I need your merciful deliverance from my enemies, from all this trouble. That's A. B, our ignorance is immeasurable. Therefore, we need God's comprehensive teaching. Our ignorance is immeasurable, therefore we need God's comprehensive teaching. The true extent of human ignorance is not something we usually like to acknowledge. Now, this room is full of smart people. We have teachers, we have engineers, we have aviators who study everything from aerodynamics to combat tactics. This is not a room many would associate with ignorance. Yet this is a part of the basis of human experience. Now, Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3 may sound familiar to you because Paul quotes from it in Romans chapter 3, verse 12. But Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3 reads this. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is one, no one who does good, not even one. David, who also wrote Psalm 14, here in Psalm 25, clearly places himself within the all who have turned away and become corrupt. In verses 4 and 5 in Psalm 25, David says that he is waiting for the Lord. He's open about his ignorance. He freely admits that he is totally relying on the Lord to teach and to guide him. 
In fact, verse 4 can be rendered, make me to know your ways. So why doesn't David know any better? He may not know much, but he does know that he's not God. Therefore, David realizes that he doesn't have God's perspective or knowledge with which to live. As the prophet Isaiah put it in chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Lord, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Later, David, in verses 8 and through 10, shifts from speaking to God to speaking about God to the readers of this psalm. That would include, of course, you and I. And according to him, the Lord shows sinners the way. Now, this is fantastic news. I hope your ears perked up when you hear that. Because God doesn't just abandon us in our ignorance, but he is gracious and he's willing to instruct us. David says that the Lord does this because he, the Lord, is good and upright. In other words, God is merciful and just. He's both. God simply cannot be only merciful, and he is not just any more, excuse me, God is simply not just merciful, and he can't be just just any more than he can be just without being merciful. He has to be both of these things. This is the genius of the cross. This is a reason why the cross can be so baffling to so many of us. I mean, we look at it, we read that account in scripture, we, we see it hanging on the wall, and we, we struggle with it. Which is it? Is it an outpouring of a gracious God's mercy? Or is it an instrument of his righteous justice towards sin? Well, at the same time, in the same event, it is both. At the cross, God's justice satisfied his wrath against our sin by pouring out that wrath on Christ himself. And yet at the same time, in the same moment, God's mercy was fulfilled by providing Christ, by providing the Messiah to be the recipient of that justice. God is both the just and the justifier. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 3, verse 26. Of course, all of this requires humility, as seen in verse 9, and obedience, as seen in verse 10 of Psalm 25. Now, regarding humility, James 4, chapter 6, reminds us, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have you ever noticed that there are no verses in the Bible about how God will teach or help the arrogant or the proud? You can't find them. They're not there. It can be very difficult to teach those who know it all. It can be very difficult to lead those who already know where they're going. They don't need your help. David knows that even he needs God's comprehensive instruction. There is nothing about which David could not benefit from the teaching of the Lord. And regarding obedience, well, just look at verse 10. The reason so many do not learn from the Lord is that they don't put into practice what he's already revealed to them. 
It's as though we hold back to see, we hold back to, to see if something better will, will come along, especially if that something will help us justify or rationalize our sin. If you're following along with our Bible reading plan this year, uh, that might sound familiar because we just read the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. And there in that story, it's verses 14 through 30, we see that the servants who put what they were given to work were given even more. But the servant who did nothing with what he was given, well, even that was taken away from him. Listen, God longs to give you more and more of himself. So if you want more of him, use what he's given you already. Put it into practice. Remember, he says here, David does in this psalm, all the Lord's ways showed faithful love to those who keep his covenant and decrees. That's, that's not a statement saying you've got to earn something from God. That's a statement saying as you put to use, put to practice what God has given you, he will give you more. It's a response. It's a fruit. In this way, P.C. Craigie uh, makes an interesting connection between Psalm 25 and Psalm 1. Psalm 1 being, being a, a short psalm, just six verses, really laying out the choice between following the Lord or following the scoffers, following the, the mockers. And so he, he notes this. He says the dispassionate wisdom of Psalm 1 could be misleading. It might be taken to imply that the essence of life was simply choosing the right road. And once the choice has been made, all will be well. In other words, if you follow Psalm 1 and you, and you, you follow where that le- you make the choice of the righteous man, then okay, all done. But that's not the case. He says, but in Psalm 25, the prayer is that of a person who has made the, the choice presented in Psalm 1 and is walking the road of the righteous. But the dispassionate wisdom has been transformed into passionate petition. For the right road is not an easy one on which to walk. Now that should get an amen. It is lined with enemies who would like nothing better than to see the walker put to shame. And the traveler on the road is also plagued with internal doubts as his, he calls to mind previous wanderings from the path and former sins. Boils down to this. The essence of the road of, of, of the righteous is this. It is a road too difficult to walk without the companionship and friendship of God. What about you? Are you trying to take on life? Are you trying to take on all those enemies in your own strength, without the power, without the guidance of the one who gave that life to you? I was B. Here's C. Our iniquity is immense. Therefore, we need God's selective amnesia. Our iniquity is immense. Therefore, we need God's selective amnesia. David has truly gone old school in this psalm, reminding us of our need for God's merciful deliverance and his comprehensive teaching. But now he brings us to a final subject that we often overlook and we would love to ignore. We'd love to ignore it, well, like, like you used to pretend that trigonometry doesn't exist or that 
Shakespeare assignment will just do itself, whatever it was for you growing up. But you know what? Our sin is like the video game we'd rather play or the the friends we'd rather hang out with instead of doing that trigonometry or that English homework. You see, it's built into us. We'll do anything except the work we know we need to do. So once again, here in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 25, uh, we find the theme of David's iniquity or sin as a need that he cries out to the Lord to meet. And he does it in a seemingly contradictory way. He he wants God to remember who he, he is, that is David, uh, and he, he, excuse me, he wants to remember, wants God to remember who he is, uh, and he wants God to remember him, David, uh, but he does not want the Lord to remember his sin. See that? Selective amnesia. Remember me, don't remember my sin. Remember who you are, don't remember my sin. So he employs an interesting strategy. In verse 6, we see, he says, you know, God, please remember who you are. Uh, first, David focuses on who God is, his character, his attributes. Uh, David points out that God has always been someone of compassion and faithful love. He's just asking God to be who he is. In fact, the Hebrew word used for compassion here, or mercy, uh, is related to the word for the womb. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 49, verse 15, described his compassion for his own people this way. Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her own womb? Even, these, even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. Make sure you see this. David is not appealing to his own merit or what he feels he deserves from God. This is because David is very, very much aware of what he deserves from God. It's a very good thing, in fact, that we don't get what we deserve from God. Instead, this appeal is based on who God is. God loves us and is merciful towards us because of his goodness, not ours, and because of his qualities, not ours. This brings David back to ask God to employ selective amnesia. Now, what is selective amnesia? Uh, well, it's, it's kind of like selective hearing. You know, how your kids or your spouse or maybe your boss uh, always seem to not hear what you need them to hear or they hear what you'd rather they forget. It, it's, it's like that. We, we, we want them to remember some things, but to forget others. And David employs that strategy here. He says at the beginning of verse 7, hey, Lord, don't remember what I've done, okay? In this case, David doesn't want God to remember uh, his past. He doesn't, he would prefer that God forget the sins of his youth and the acts of rebellion. Uh, But at the same time, he wants the Lord to remember. He wants to remember who David is to him. He'd just like it if, if, if he remembered that instead of his past sin. David wants him to remember, hey, remember me? I'm the guy that 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 14 describes as a man after your heart. Uh, Remember me? I'm I'm the king and shepherd of your people. That's that's the one I I want you to remember 
That's how I want you to remember me. So believers in Christ are told over and over in the New Testament who they are in Christ. And that's how David wants God to look at him. That's, that's how David wants God to think of him when he remembers David. Not the guy who did all the terrible stuff. He wants to remember the guy who is just like him, who's a man after his own heart. So once again, here in verse, as we get to verse 11 of Psalm 25, David appeals to God's centrality. This is about God. It's not about David. He asks for forgiveness for the sake of God's name. God's glory comes from many sources, from his infinite power, his infinite presence, his singular role as the prime cause of everything that exists. The list goes on and on. But another one of those sources of God's glory is his goodness, especially as his mercy and his grace, his forgiving disposition and so on are so concerned, uh, as, as they're concerned, that's what God wants to, to be glorified for. And in verse 11, David is essentially saying, forgive me, not because of me, but because of you. The next statement David makes is crucial. He says his iniquity is immense. He's, he's calling a spade a spade. Now, now, we and the world around us we usually do the opposite of this, don't we? We minimize our sin. We, we rationalize it. We, we excuse it. And by doing this, we tend to minimize the cross. After all, if, if sin's no big deal, then Jesus' sacrifice for it is no big, deal, no big deal either. But I want you to listen to this. Immense sin requires immense sacrifice. Immense sin requires immense sacrifice. It's, it's likely that even in eternity, we're not going to fully comprehend what Jesus did for us at the cross. But the apostle Peter tried to describe it for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, when he said that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died for sins, we might live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. We've been healed by his wounds. Now that does deserve an amen. We might even sneak in at hallelujah. All right. All right. There we go. There we go. This is legit. We were dead in sin when we received a share in the death of Christ. When he died as a man of perfect righteousness, the debt was paid. The fatal illness, it was cured. Why? Well, among other reasons, that we might live for righteousness. David reminds us of this here in verse 11. Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. There's an extra credit here in verse 22. David appeals to the Lord to redeem Israel as we would join him in asking him to redeem us. You see, our, our impotence leaves us insecure. Therefore, we need God's merciful deliverance. Our ignorance is immeasurable. Therefore, we need God's comprehensive teaching. Our iniquity is immense. Therefore, we need God's selective amnesia. 
it may seem to come from nowhere, but as we come to verse 22 at the end of this psalm, it actually makes a lot of sense. After David settled accounts with God individually, it only makes sense that he would want others first to own his own people, Israel, to receive the same redemption he has. And you know what? We owe our nation and its people no less. In fact, we owe all of humanity no less. Psalm 25 is old school. It does not try to overwhelm us with complicated ideas or new revolutionary information. But the Lord does use it to teach us very important basic truths about himself and what it's like to have a relationship with him. As you scan back through Psalm 25, you see God is faithful in verse 3. He's characterized by truth and his paths lead us in truth in verses 4 and 5. He is our savior in verse 5. God is merciful and loving and has been from of old, from antiquity, verse 6. God is good and upright, verse 8. God is loving and faithful in all his ways, verse 10. God is forgiving, verse 11. God is open with his people and freely confides in them, verse 14. God is gracious, verse 16. God is powerful to rescue his people. Therefore, he's the only one in whom we take refuge, verses 15 and 20. All throughout this psalm, very important things. So are you ready for the pop quiz? You knew this was coming. We did the ABCs, now we got to do the one, two, threes. This leaves us with these questions to, to think about as we seek to apply all that we've learned here from Psalm 25. First question, are you still trying to save yourself? Think about that for a moment. Are you still trying to save yourself? In verses 19 through 21 of Psalm 25, David does something that's common in lament. He begs the Lord to look, to consider. In other words, he's like a child saying, Daddy, Daddy, look, look, look at what I'm doing. Look at what's happened to me. Fix this, help me. And so here he wants God to turn his attention to his enemies. But in in this case, you know, David is right to turn to the Lord and to seek rescue and protection from him. Now, there are two things to note here. First, don't overlook your own worst enemy. I'm sure David was preoccupied with someone seeking to do him some kind of harm. There seems like with David, there's always somebody trying to take the throne. There's always somebody trying to end his life. Uh, but but as we've already reflected upon, David is his own worst enemy. And the same could be said for us. No one else will ever do me the kind of harm I've done myself. As I feed my own appetites that I should be killing. That as I fuel attitudes that I, I should denounce. As I follow my own reasoning instead of God's truth and reasoning. You see, we have to remember that when you ask God to consider your enemies, that he would also help you kill your old self and its desires. The other thing about this question is that here towards the end of the psalm, David says that he will wait for the Lord to act. I, I know there was a little confusion about it, but what a beautiful song that we heard. 
um, right before the message, talking about waiting on the Lord. David, when he says that, here's what he's trying to instruct us in. Here's what he's trying to model for us. He's saying, abandon hope in yourself. Abandon uh, and set aside your efforts to solve your own problems. Of course, the chief problem we have is sin. And he's saying, look, you know, there are, there are many times we're called to, to get to work with God to, as we follow his lead. But it seems as though David here is caught in some spiritual quicksand. And he, he needs outside assistance. And as he wrote earlier in verse 3, no one who waits for you, God, will be disgraced. We must join David and abandon all hope in our own ability to save ourselves. That includes letting go of the foolish notion that we're not all that bad to begin with and what do we really need to be saved from. Second question on the quiz. Are you humble and teachable? You see, we may enter this world spiritually dead and rebels by our own nature, but once we've repented of our sin and believed in Christ for the forgiveness of that sin, we begin a lifelong journey of being transformed from the old us into the new us. And guess what? The new us looks a lot like Jesus. In Psalm, excuse me, in John 17, verse 17, Jesus prayed for all believers, asking the Father to sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. To be sanctified is to experience that transformation. For almost everyone, that's a process that God uses to work in us for the rest of our lives. Jesus says that process works through us by his word. And this requires humility and teachability. In verse 14 of Psalm 25, David tells us about the secret counsel of the Lord. Now, I know we read that and we get all excited and we think, all right, here we go. We're going to finally figure out, find out when Jesus is coming back. Or, or we're going to finally figure out this question that nobody seems to answer. That's not what David's talking about. Uh, he says uh, that the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear God. This is not simply a, a matter of being scared of God, but humility and submission. You see, if you fear God in that way, you become teachable. You become a friend of God who can bring, who God can bring into his counsel. Jesus describes this kind of relationship in John chapter 15, verse 15. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. Listen, there's nothing in this world like being God's friend. I love how James A. Johnston put this in his commentary. He said to to be God's friend is more than just knowing about him. Friends enjoy each other's company. Friendship is close, personal knowledge. It's one thing for God to teach us which path to take. That is, that is a blessing. But for God to make us his friends is almost inconceivable. And then he, he cites this example. I don't know if this actually happened or not. He says that apparently at one point, uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook, you heard that name? Uh, that apparently Tim Cook offered to have coffee for an hour with up to two people. But there was a catch. It was going to cost you $210,000. 
And who knows when this happened? By now, it could cost you a good quarter million. Who knows? But here's the difference. God is not selling you his time. He offers you his friendship. He opens his his heart to those who fear him, and that leads him to share his plans and purposes. So if you fear the Lord, this is a blessing of yours in Christ. Are you humble and teachable? Last question. Are you fighting for your sin? In verse 18, David makes a final appeal to the Lord to forgive all my sins, he says. Not just those of his youth or the rebellion of his adulthood, but all of them. He asks the Lord to really look at, to consider all that he's going through. Many of his afflictions and his troubles were self-inflicted, right? Just like us. That's the truth. That's the case for us. But still he cries to the Lord, consider my affliction and trouble and forgive all my sins. Now, what do you think God's reaction would be if David made that appeal, that appeal, that plea, simply to dust him off, just, just to clean him up, all so he could go out and, and do it again? What do you think God's reaction would be to that? Does anyone here imagine that God wants to serve as our maid or our home repairman just cleaning up and fixing up the messes we leave behind just so we can do it again without ever addressing the root cause of it all? I hope not. David knew he had access to God's grace. He also knew that no one who waits for the Lord and fears him will be left out in the cold. And we should be encouraged to know that it's true. God's mercies are new every morning. And yes, it's true that his forgiveness and his grace is always greater than our sin. Remember, we are saved by Christ's perfection, not our own. All who call on the Lord as David did will have all their sins forgiven. And we're not only saved from death and hell and all that come with them, we're also saved to. You know that? We're not just saved from all this scary stuff, we're also saved to join in the fight, to resist sin, to cultivate a new desire to please God more than we seek to please ourselves or others. And even though we will experience setbacks and discouragement in our war with sin, it should be exactly that, a war with our sin. This is one of the greatest reassurances of our salvation, a stubborn, persistent growth in our resistance to the power of sin in our lives. In other words, if, you're, if you ever find yourself wondering, man, am I saved? Is this, has this really happened? Can I be sure of eternal life? One of the things that is a good sign is that your sin bothers you, that you're not just going, oh, yeah, that was great. Let me do that some more. One of the signs that's a good sign is that there's conviction, that you feel the Holy Spirit uh, speaking to you about it. Now, from there, you don't want to grieve him. From there, you want to listen to him, to take action, to get in the fight. But I want to encourage you that if, that if you are feeling yourself struggle with your sin, that's actually a good thing. Psalm 25 brings us basic truths that remind us that Jesus changes everything. In his commentary on the Psalms, Harry Ironside tells 
a story about visiting a very old Christian. The man was about 90 years old. He had lived a a godly life. However, in his last days, he sent for Ironside because, as he expressed it, everything seemed so dark. Whatever do you mean, asked Ironside. You've known the, the Lord for nearly 70 years. You've lived for him a long, long time. You've helped others. What, what do you mean, dark? The man replied, in my illness, since I've been lying here so weak, my memory keeps bringing up the sins of my youth, and I cannot get them out of my mind. I keep, they keep crowding in on me, and, and I can't help thinking of them. They make me feel miserable and wretched. Ironside Ironside turned to this psalm, Psalm 25, and to verse 7, and read the verse in which David prays, Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to our love, your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. And after Ironside had read the words, he said, he told the man this, he said, When you came to God 70 years ago, and you confessed your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ, Do you remember what happened then? The old man thought, and he couldn't remember. Ironside said, Don't you remember that when you confessed your sins to God, God said, Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. No more. If God has forgotten them, then why should you think about them? The man relaxed And he replied, I am an old fool remembering what God has forgotten. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your servant David and his words in Psalm 25 that once again remind us of such basic yet very important truths. Lord, this is a psalm that teaches us who you are and how to have a relationship with you. And so this morning, I just ask that you would have your way among us here and now. Lord, I pray that if there are those here who have never done what that old man did, they've never repented of their sins, they've never received forgiveness bought for them through the blood of Christ at the cross, Lord, perhaps this would be the day when they would yield themselves to your grace and join in the fight against their sin. Lord, perhaps there's some of us who we stopped fighting a long time ago. We've just given in. We've just gone with the flow because maybe we feel like there's no hope anymore. Lord, I pray that this psalm reminds us that not only is there hope, but there is true power for victory. And that, Lord, All we need to do is come to you, our Heavenly Father, because you love us, you are faithful to us, and you will deliver us, you will teach us, you will forgive us. Lord, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the way that Jesus changes everything. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, have your way among us here this morning. We ask this in his name. Amen.